All right, uh, Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 5, we're in our series, Jesus for Everyone. Uh, we're making our way through the book of Luke, verse by verse. This is kind of how we do things. Uh, it's always interesting whenever we're in the middle of a series like this, making our way through a book, and, 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 and I try to figure out, do we pause our series uh, in order to do a series just for Easter, or do we just keep uh, trucking through the book and just kind of see where the verses fall? And uh, as, we, uh, as we prepared things and got things ready to go here, it, it seemed pretty clear to me that, that I think this passage that we're on this morning would serve us very well this morning for Easter. And so we said, let's just keep going. Let's just keep trucking uh, verse by verse, and let's see how this verse uh, sets things up for us on Easter. And so as we get started, I want to ask you two questions. Uh, one about Jesus and one about his followers. Two questions that will ha- kind of frame our morning just a little bit, or at least maybe kind of get your brains going uh, as, we, as we do this. If you were to describe Jesus' Jesus's method for his time here on earth, uh, kind of ask the question, how did Jesus carry out his ministry, what would you say? How did he go about what he did? Jesus did blank while he dwelled among us. And the second question is pretty similar. Uh, as followers of Jesus, Christians today should live lives that are marked by blank. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, there's a lot of different things you can fill in those, those blanks there. There's a few different things that you could put in there to kind of answer that question. So this is not like a, there's only one right answer type of thing, but you got to show your work just a little bit. And that's what I'm going to do this morning, give you an answer that that I think you probably would not come up with on your own. I think if you were to ask the average person out on the street uh, to, to come up with the answer to those questions, it would be a long time before you would get the answer that we're going to get this morning. Uh, but I think it is one that, will, uh, that, that plays perfectly for us here at Easter. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 5, verse 33, uh, and then we'll go back and catch a little bit of the context here that we saw last week. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And they said to him, this is the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, those that were uh, watching Jesus. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the old will not match the old. And no one puts the new wine into the old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into the fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good." So in this one little paragraph here, Jesus mixes all kinds of metaphors. Uh, He gives us all kinds of things for us to talk about, most of which we'll actually talk about uh, next week, so you can kind of get a preview of coming attractions of what we're going to talk about. Uh, We're really only going to address one of these, uh, and it's the the first one. And I'll be honest with you, as we get started, I've got about four sermons here that I think I'm turning into one. So I'm going to do my best to get you out out, out of here in time for lunch, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, The setting here is that Jesus has just been accused uh, of doing far too much partying for a rabbi. This is what we saw last week. He's doing far too much partying for a rabbi. Honestly, he's doing far too much partying for a Jew. Uh, Especially, he is charged with partying with the wrong people, the wrong kinds of people. 
We saw last week that, that Jesus uh, dismissed the Pharisees and their concerns for who he is eating with. They, he said, uh, he, they, they came and they said, you're eating, you're having these meals with tax collectors and with sinners. And Jesus says, I did not come for the, the healthy and the righteous, I came for those that were sick. A doctor comes for those that are sick. That's what we saw uh, last week. But this week, it's not who he's eating with, but the fact that he's eating at all that is kind of getting on their nerves, that is uh, starting to annoy them. That's where they, they start to kind of poke and prod just a little bit. That's what has their attention. If they can't call him on the carpet for who he is having his dinner party uh, with, then they're going to try to call him out for the way he goes about these meals and what he is doing there. You see, the Pharisees were, were, were men that were known to perform. They were really, really good at it. The Pharisees, I, I've said this a few times now, the Pharisees get a bad rap because in the, in the Gospels they get, they get a bad rap. They're, they're kind of the bad guys in the Gospels. But, but the reality is the Pharisees were really good at what they did. They were really good rule followers. They weren't just rule followers like, like hypocrites in the sense that they made rules and then didn't follow them. They actually followed the rules that they set forward. They were actually really good at it. They were the law keepers, the, the, the men that liked to showcase how good they were at being good. And the key, though, is the showcase. They liked to showcase it. Their righteousness wasn't inherent as to who they are. Their righteousness was performative. They weren't righteous for righteousness' sake. They were, they were righteous for the sake of being seen and known for being righteous. That was what drove everything that they did. So what they were used to uh, in, in religious teachers at the time was the same kind of ethos, the same kind of way of doing things. Even if the rabbis that didn't fit in with their crowd that, that weren't Pharisees, even those other rabbis that were out there, they, they all had a sense of a need to do something when it came to their religion. Perhaps this is the kind of religion that you know well. Whether it be the highly prescribed rites of penance in the Catholic Church, or it be the, the, the more southern religion where certain types of words and actions might fly on the golf course on Tuesday, but not at church on Sunday, right? The, the, the thing where, where there's certain things that you can do and you can't do, and there's certain things you can do and you can't do depending upon the audience that you're with and who you are with. And so this, this, this religion becomes performative because it's done in front of people. That's what drives the nature of the religion. This is no stranger to us. We know this well. They flow from the same fountain as the Pharisees and their need to showcase their religion. But even John the Baptist's disciples did this to some degree. Now, they weren't doing it at the same level the Pharisees were to be seen by others, but they still felt the need to do something. John was no friend to the Pharisees, but even his disciples would fast, and this is their point whenever they confront Jesus here. He says, even John, this, this crazy wacko out in the desert who had his, his super extreme followers, even they fast. Why don't your followers fast, Jesus? Why is it that way? Are they not disciplined enough? Are they not as righteous as we are? Do you not care about their righteousness, Jesus? Or maybe you're not a good enough rabbi, Jesus. Maybe you're not good at what you do. Maybe you can't pull it off. Are you even a rabbi at all if your disciples don't practice, if you don't prescribe and your disciples don't practice these spiritual disciplines? 
All of this was perplexing to the, to the Pharisees. They did not understand this at all. And they were starting to get annoyed with Jesus. But as we saw last week, they still hadn't quite decided whether Jesus was friend or foe. They still haven't quite decided whether he was going to be the enemy. They really are asking the question. They don't understand. They've never seen a rabbi that didn't prescribe a fast because that's how you knew you were religious. You would go through these different fasts and people would see it and acknowledge it. And so whenever they ask this question, why don't your disciples fast? It's that half question, half accusation. If you are married, you know this. This half question, half accusation, right? Whenever you get the question, why did you choose not to do the dishes while I was out today? That's not a question. That's an accusation, right? We all know this. Well, whenever you get that, whenever you get that, 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 that question that really is an implied I noticed you didn't do this. You should have done this. Uh, We all know that. So this question is kind of an accusation too. Why aren't your disciples real disciples, Jesus? Or more to the point, you call yourself a rabbi, but no real rabbi would let his disciples skip out on this basic practice. So why do you do this, Jesus? And Jesus' Jesus's response is one that I think is lost on us a little bit. Sometimes the language of the Bible can kind of make stuff not land quite the way that it, that it should. He uses this bridegroom language, which we kind of know what that is, but we don't use that word. Um, and so it sounds a little foreign to us. But let's read his response again. The disciples of the John, fa- uh, this is verse 33. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As a pastor, one of my favorite things to do uh, is premarital counseling and to be able to stand up uh, with the best seat in the house at a wedding, to stand right in front of uh, right in front of a, of a couple as a groom and a bride uh, make their vows um, and, 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 and do this in front of all of their friends and family. I love the ability uh, to get to do that. With every service I have ever done, here's what has been the stated goal in some form or fashion that I have received from the would-be uh, groom and bride. Make the vows and the ceremony meaningful. Make them true. Make them binding before God and make it quick because that is the goal of the service. Get through this thing. I've managed to whittle my spiel that I have before or at a wedding. Uh, I've managed to whittle my spiel down from about uh, 10 minutes to about three minutes. And so I have, I have gone much shorter and continue to go shorter, I think, every time that I have uh, done it. Quick is the name of the game. We need the ceremony to be quick because the party is about to go down. The party is about to happen. 20-minute ceremony followed by about a six-hour dinner and dancing is, I think, the the norm that is out there. And listen, I'm a pretty conservative guy. You are not going to find me on any dance floor anywhere. You do not want to see that. Uh, Emily has said multiple times that whenever I try to dance, I look like the characters from, from Peanuts, like Charlie Brown, like... I guess that's how I dance. Maybe, maybe it's like Kevin on Home Alone. That's how I dance. Um, so, so you're not going to find me on a, a dance floor. Uh, I'll be the wallflower watching. But when people decide to party at a wedding, they decide to party. 
And I love to watch it. I'm a bit of a people watcher, and so I, I watch it, and I love to look around and see the, the smiles, the exuberance, the laughter, the stupid best man, and then the, the speeches that happen and come with those. I like all of it. I think it's all great. I love to see the, the grandparents and the parents laughing and crying. I love it because it's a reflection of the joy found between the new husband and his wife and their friends and their family. And all that's there because they know that that moment is about a time of celebration. It's not a time to fast. It is a time to feast. And this is Jesus' point whenever he says this to the Pharisees. You can imagine the killjoy in the corner of the room that says he won't eat because at, 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 a, at, at a wedding because he's on a prescribed fast. You can doubly imagine the roll of the eyes if you've, if you've got someone that is, that is sitting at a table, uh, that is sitting not at the corner of the room, but he's sitting actually at the, the, the table of the wedding party, seated at the table with the wedding party, and he refused to eat the food or drink the wine or grape juice, depending on how you want to. He refused to do that because he was on a fast. And wanted everyone in the room to know just how holy he was for his fast. That's the Pharisees. They were the ones that would do it in front of everyone. And they wanted everyone to know, look at me. You guys are chowing down on the food and drinking the wine. Not me, because I love God more than you do. That's what the Pharisees would do. And frankly, that's that's what the Pharisees told everyone else they should be doing as well. Jesus puts an end to all of that. He squashes all that nonsense. He says, drink up, eat up, party up. The groom has come to claim his bride. The kingdom of God is at hand, and I have come to bring it. So right now, right now, when Jesus is there, it's time to party. No fasting needed. Somewhere along the way, Christians have gotten off track. We became known as the ones that are here to rob everyone of fun. We have become known as the ones that want to rob everyone of joy and smiles and laughter. We have become known as a people of boredom, but that is not how Jesus rolled at all. I asked you earlier to fill in the blank. If you were to describe the method of Jesus' ministry here on earth, how would you describe it? What would you say? Jesus did blank while he dwelled here among us. Luke answers that question just a couple of chapters uh, from now. In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, he says this here. The Son of Man, that's a title for Jesus. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So if someone were to ask you, what was Jesus' method of ministry when he was here on earth? How did Jesus come? One of the answers that is, a, that is the right answer that Luke gives us here, and this is actually the words of Jesus that Luke is quoting, that Jesus came eating and drinking. That is his own description of his own ministry. That's not an accusation from the Pharisees. Their problem was who he was doing it with. And this initial question, they were trying to figure out why he was doing so much eating and drinking. But Jesus' own description of his ministry is he came eating and drinking. And I'm telling you, if you give the average man on the street 20 guesses, he's not going to come up with that to say that's how Jesus came. And if you give the average churchgoer about 50 guesses, he's probably not going to get there either. He w- you wouldn't come up with that. 
We think about Jesus and his ministry in so many ways, many of them with great seriousness and with these somber realities. And we say things like, Jesus came to die, and Jesus came to call out sin, and Jesus came to suffer. And all those things are true. We had an entire service on Friday night that was dedicated to Jesus' suffering and what he endured on Good Friday. So it's fine to say those. Those things are all true. But when Jesus describes his own ministry, this is what he says. He came eating and drinking. As we go throughout Luke's gospel, as we continue going through this gospel, it will become almost redundantly obvious that this happens. As one commentator noted, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either coming from, at, or going to a meal. I want to show you this. Uh, just look at this from, from, from Luke's account. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi, of Matthew. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers uh, of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals uh, rather than their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. In Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper and the meal that he shares with his disciples. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with two disciples in Emmaus, and then later he eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And so whenever we see that, that's not just like he came eating and drinking in the sense that like he was always stuffing his face with like Twix and, 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 and Funyuns whenever he was walking around. This is saying he came and he shared a meal with people. This is saying he came and he sat down with people and, 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 and he allowed people to prepare those meals. And then he, he sat down across a, a table and he looked them in the eye and he talked with them and he conversed with them. It was an, it was an intimate thing to share a meal with someone to break bread with someone, and that's how Jesus came. So what do we make of all of that this morning? What kind of implications does it have for us, and what in the world does that have to do with the Easter story? I am going to scratch the surface of answering those two questions. Legit, everything that we, if if you want to follow and, and truly do a theology of feasting in the Bible, you could easily make a book out of it. You could easily you could easily write a paper about it, and you could you could cover so much. But I'm going to give it a shot this morning to try to just scratch the surface and give a brief little overview here. I love this quote from Andrew Wilson. He says, "No disciple would invent the charge that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard." That says something. God is happier than people think he should be. That is not a picture that we have of God very often. Yet it's the picture that is painted of Jesus. So first, what are the implications for us as Christians that Jesus came and worked out his ministry like this? So rapid fire, let's just throw a couple of things out there. For one, it means that we've got to figure out as Christians how to do ministry, at least in some way, like Jesus did. Jesus isn't afraid to call out sin. He isn't afraid to tell people that their hearts were misshapen, broken, and unrighteous. He wasn't afraid to call people to repentance over that sin. But his interactions with people were were built around a pursued relationship and were born out of a joy and a love for people. 
This isn't an evangelism strategy for Jesus. Hear me here for just a second. That was popular for, for a long time. This, this term kind of came out, relational evangelism. There were whole books and classes and conferences built around this idea that you would look for ways to befriend people at your, your local gym, in a, in a class, at your school, at your, at your job, that you would, you, would, you would try to find somebody, identify them, and if they seem friendly, then you would make friends with them. You would get to know them. And these seminars would teach you how to make those friends all so that you could tell them about Jesus. And while I admire the thought behind this and I admire what was trying to happen and the approach that was going on here, especially the attempt for for sharing the the gospel and the good news of Jesus as being more than leaving a tract in 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 an airplane like or in an airport bathroom, I do appreciate that there's more thought that went into that. It turned people into a project. And that's not what Jesus is doing. He is there to share a meal with people. He is there to share life with people, to break bread, to sit at the table, to raise a glass, and to toast one another. Our interactions with people, Christians or not, should smell like Jesus. Here's what I mean. You ever ever go to Subway for lunch? You ever go to Subway for lunch and you get a sandwich, you eat it, bread, tomato, red onion, spinach, mayo, meat of your choice, pickles, cucumbers, all standard ingredients for any sandwich. But you can eat that at lunchtime and get home five hours later and you walk in and your spouse will be like, you had Subway for lunch, didn't you? you had sub- and you'll be like, how, how did you know? Be like, I smelled you when you got out of the car. I don't understand how the same ingredients at Subway smell so different than when you do those same ingredients in your own home or any other sandwich shop. But somehow Subway has its own very unique, uh, its own very unique uh, smell. Anyways, my, my point is that when you eat Subway, everyone knows you ate Subway because you smell like Subway. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We should be the aroma of Christ to those that are perishing. We should spend so much time with Christ and our ministry should look so much like the way that Jesus did did his ministry that our love for others and our interaction with others should look and sound like him. We should be the aroma of Christ. It should be where people say, you've been with Jesus because that's the only way you could do ministry like Jesus. It's not just the eating and drinking is some missional strategy though. It is a way to be in this world. It is a way to live. And in doing so, we acknowledge some very powerful things whenever we eat and we drink with people. I want you to contrast these two ideas in your own head. The fasting the Pharisees prescribed or the feasting that Jesus prescribes. Fasting is, for the most part, a solo project, right? When you fast, you do that on your own. You don't do that with others. Nobody says, hey, let's get together and have a fast. Nobody says that. They say, I'm going to have a fast and I'm going to stay away from you because you're going to be angry and you're going to be hungry and you're not going to be a nice person. So we're going to do this all on our own and all by ourselves when we do a fast. No one says, let's get together and fast. It is a solo discipline. On the other hand, no one says, I'll feast alone. 
Or if they do, it's not a feast anymore. It's something totally different. But no one says, I'll feast alone. There's an implication whenever you talk about feasting. Feasting is an inherently communal thing to do. Feasting implies three things. Three things here. An abundance to rejoice in, a community to rejoice with, and an occasion to rejoice for. I'm going to say that again. Feasting implies three things. An abundance to rejoice in, a community, a community to rejoice with, and an occasion to rejoice for. And in Jesus we find all three of those things. The church is the community. His grace and mercy is the abundance. And his resurrection is the occasion. More on that in just a minute. Life is found around the table with good friends. It's why we've built our, 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 one of our primary environments here at Providence. Listen, our strategy here at Providence is very simple. Bring people to church and then get them around a table with friends. That's, that's, that's generally what our strategy is. Get people here, introduce them to one another, and send them out to have dinner with each other. That's what we want to do. That is like legitimately our front porch communities are built around the, around the idea of breaking bread with one another. No agenda, no programmed Bible study, just friends sharing laughter, stories, and struggles together. There is something about that table that allows us to open our hearts in different ways and to lift our hearts together at the same time. It's part of why we don't have a ton of programs here at church. I would rather you gather in in each other's homes for dinner than gather here for a class. I'd rather you be with others over a meal than that you come here for more information. You'll be more like Jesus if you're at someone's house eating a meal together. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we have any C.S. Lewis Narnia fans, like big Narnia fans out there? All right, got a few of you. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene in the book where the, the, the white witch comes upon a group of animals that are sharing a meal together. They're eating together. And in the book, they can barely contain their excitement over the meal. They're, they're stuffing their face. They're, they're talking. They're raising a glass to toast. And right at the moment that they raise a glass to toast, uh, you, 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 the, the witch comes upon them. And so they're, they're, they're super excited to share this meal together, even though they're in the midst of a frozen, uh, a, a, a frozen tundra there that is Narnia under the power of the white witch. And so even though they know that their simple act of gathering together to feast is, is, would be under punishment from the witch, they are excited to do so. You see, the white witch thinks that, that Narnia is now her kingdom to rule over. She knows that there should be no occasion for a feast in Narnia. For there is no joy. She has taken that from them. It is, it is always winter and never Christmas is the description. She knows there should be no occasion for a feast. But the animals share the feast in celebration that Father Christmas has come. Which is hope that Aslan too would return. And the white witch is livid at the sight of these animals eating their feast together. To her, it is an act of war. It means her kingdom is under attack. It means her reign is slipping. 
It means the kingdom that, that, that it means that this kingdom doesn't belong to her like she had thought. Feasting for them was an act of war. And so it is with us. When we share a meal, when we raise a glass, when we laugh until we cry or we cry until we laugh as we break bread together, it is somehow a moment that touches something far greater than the kingdom of earth. And it gives us the echoes of that happy home that we long for. Feasting isn't just good for the soul because it makes us happy. It is good for the soul because it somehow teaches us what is true and what is hopeful and what 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 truly pushes back against the darkness of this world. In Satan's kingdom, suffering and pain rule the day. Brokenness and darkness have their way. But when we do the simple act of sharing a meal together, we declare that this world is not Satan's kingdom because the kingdom of God is breaking through every time we sit down and share a meal together. But back to this idea that Easter is the occasion for the feast. I'm not just saying this because so many of you have a ham in your oven right now that you're trying to figure out if you're going to be able to get home in time to do what you need to do with it. You've got your deviled eggs in the fridge ready to go. Uh, That's a good enough reason for a feast. But that's not the only reason that I'm saying that Easter is a feast for us. This is the language of the writers of Scripture. From beginning to end. I don't have time this morning. Gosh, I would love to be able to do this. I don't have time this morning uh, to pull out all the ways that a meal ties different portions of Scripture together. From the first meal in the garden that brought sin into the world. To the last meal that, that Jesus ate before he was crucified. In the last supper, how he inaugurated and said, Every time you eat this meal, do it in remembrance of me when he started the Lord's Supper to the end of Revelation, where the culmination of all Scripture is just what Jesus talks about here, a wedding supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb to which all of those that have trusted in Jesus have been invited. The idea of a meal ties so much of Scripture together. And while I'm tempted to get into each one of those for the sake of time, I will constrain myself to just one thing that I will pull out for us on this Easter morning. And it just so happens to be something that Paul pulls out for us too in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read a whole big chunk of this chapter here. Don't get lost in too much of the words. He kind of goes back and forth. Just hang with me, and I think you're going to see a pretty amazing thing that is here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Paul writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So this is not some idle wives tale that we believe here. There's eyewitnesses still alive at the time Paul writes this that could say that Paul, you're nuts. That didn't happen, but they do not come forward. Most of, he says, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And you skip on down uh, to verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching
teaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't... For we testify because he... Let me say all that again. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. So that whole paragraph is Paul saying, if Jesus didn't come back to life, we're wasting our time and we're blaspheming God. But, in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now there's a lot there. There's all kinds of things that Paul says there, and I'm not even going to begin to, to tell you all of it, but I wanted you to have the context of what is happening there. We're used to hearing about Jesus as the Passover lamb at Easter and around uh, Good Friday. We're, we're used to drawing out all the different ways that Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system as the spotless lamb. That's basically the whole book of Hebrews that does that for us, the lamb of God, as we should. Uh, we should remember Passover and all that goes with that. I know that many of you celebrated a, a Passover Seder this week. I think that is great. I think it's good to tie Jesus to those things and show how he fulfills those things. But did you know that there is another meal, a feast, in fact, uh, that would have happened just a few days after Passover? One that also prefigures and points us to Jesus. In Leviticus chapter 23, I'm going to read this real quick. You don't have to turn there. But Leviticus 23 chapter 9, it says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring uh, the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. On the day after the Sabbath. Anybody know what day that is? It's a Sunday. On the day after the Sabbath, it's the first Sabbath after the Passover. So we're talking about right here, Easter Sunday. When Jesus died, this is the day he would come back. And they're saying that this is what you should do. And you should, you should do all these things. And then what is prescribed here is a grain offering, a burnt offering, and a drink offering. It is called the Feast of the First Fruits. And it's to be given on this day, the day after the, the first day after the Sabbath on uh, Passover. It happens early in the spring, tied to Passover, and it would have been celebrated. Remember, Sabbath was a Saturday, so that would be make us uh, here on a Sunday. And they would take the grain offering to the priest, followed by this burnt offering and this drink offering. And then the offering is intended to remind Israel that God was the one that gives the harvest. And their willingness to sacrifice their first fruits showed that their trust was not in their crops, but that their trust was in God instead. They give the very first little bit that they get out of their crops to say, God, I trust what harvest would come after this to you. God, I trust that you are the one in control here. But did you catch what Paul said in the midst of this long teaching about the nature of the resurrection and the hope that it gives? 
I'm going to read this starting in verse 17 again. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The what? First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's totally lost on us if we don't understand what Paul is referencing here. He is referencing the the feast of the first fruits. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as if in Adam for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then the harvest coming after who belong to Christ. The same day that the men of Israel would have been going back to the temple with their first fruits offering and celebrating the feast of the first fruits, the same day Jesus comes out of the tomb and reveals himself to the women and to the disciples. Paul takes this as evidence that God has more in store for each of us. The feast of the first fruits is evidence that God has given us hope and there is hope for us all. Because listen, if Jesus rose from the dead, that is miraculous, that is powerful, that is something to be celebrated. It is great. It validates that Jesus has defeated death. But if that's all he did and that's not just the first fruits of what is to come, it is a single miracle to be celebrated, but it leaves us with no hope. It tells us Jesus is alive, but I'm not sure if I'll be alive. But if he's the first fruits, if he's just the beginning, if the harvest is to come after him, which is exactly what Paul says, then we do have hope. Then death does not have the last word on Jesus or on us. This is a meal we eat with full celebration acknowledgement that God's kingdom is breaking in and, that, and that, that Christ was the down payment on us. In him, we shall be made alive. This is our hope. This is our Easter celebration. It is all built around a feast. And this is why we feast. Because it is an abundance to rejoice in. The grace of God as it overflows. You can hear it in Paul's language here. He's saying, he's saying if, 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 if in Adam all die, it comes that way. How much more in Christ does his grace overflow in us? It is an abundance to rejoice in. It is a community here and all over the world this morning to rejoice with on Easter Sunday. And it is an occasion to rejoice for. It is a prescribed feast for us. Is there a time to fast? Yes, there is. No doubt there is. Jesus tells us there will be. This world is still not our home, and God's kingdom is breaking in, but it has not been fully seated and established. It is not fully consummated yet. So until that day, we fast and we feast. But in the New Testament, there's far more feasting than there is fasting. And our ultimate destiny in Revelation 19 is a feast with the king. Revelation 19, verse 6. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are, the, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is what we celebrate at Easter. There will be a day when we will finally reach our ultimate destination. And it will be a feast and a celebration like no other. But until that day comes, we feast together as an act of war, as a pushing back against the darkness. That we somehow, when we gather together and break bread, it, st- it, it, it spits in the face of Satan who says, this world doesn't, it, is, it should be a place of suffering and pain for you. And what we are able to say as we gather together with others and as we, as we eat meals with others, we are able to say, yes, this place is a place of suffering, but this is not our ultimate home. We celebrate together. It is the feast of the resurrection. That is what we are called to do. This is Easter Sunday for us. And so this morning, my question for you is, have you accepted that invitation? Have you accepted that invitation to that marriage supper? Or are you still trying to find your way and, 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 and eating on the things of this world? Dining on the things of this world, trying to find satisfaction there. Or this Easter Sunday, do you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus? Where we can feast together and we can celebrate the goodness of Jesus Christ. That he is risen from the dead. Let's pray. Father, it is our confession that this world is indeed a dark and broken place, but it is also our celebration this morning that that is not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story, that instead we can celebrate the truth of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. And so, Father, as we, as we gather here and we celebrate today, help us to, that, that celebration, the joy in our voices, the joy as we sing, that it would push back the darkness, that it would be another picture of your kingdom breaking through. And, Father, as we go our different ways today, I pray that today would be a day full of rejoicing and celebration. Wherever we go, to friends or to families' homes, to our own homes, that we would celebrate that we would eat, drink, and be merry. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.